Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Neville Pritchard. Neville is the executive director and founder of People in Flow Limited, a human resources company over in Buckinghamshire. Um, Neville, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. Uh, great pleasure. It's a pleasure having you. Now, um, Neville, this podcast, of course, is all about um, leadership, effective leadership at that. And it's under the microscope, none more so than now with the fallout of the whole uh, COVID-19 outbreak, of course. Um, Tell me, um, within your industry, how has it been trying to navigate through the last couple of weeks? Well, it's it's, it's never easy um, in these situations. And and it it throws up so many questions. You know, the... um, the opportunities to explore when is the right time to be doing what. Um, it's a leadership challenge at any point in time, but right now, um, of course, it's magnified uh, you know, many thousands of times. Absolutely, and it really calls into question that idea of being proactive as a leader but also being reactive as well because it's important to have contingency plans in place know the direction you're going in but also finding that balance between that and being reactive and being able to not necessarily just roll with the punches but also be able to react and make decisions based on changing guidelines that's incredibly important at the moment isn't it it is and and, and you know as a leader one one is spending time and and on leadership development programs and uh, consulting firms coming in and working with leadership teams, there's a great deal of time spent on on worst-case scenarios. Well, I think we now know what that might be. (laughs) um, Perhaps we've been caught out by exploring worst-case scenarios that have effectively been comfortable ones ones that people were comfortable to take on because it was within the realms of their ability to solve. Um, we're now being hit with situations which are beyond that. Uh, and um, it really calls into question, I think, the need for um, bolder uh, leadership team meetings and leadership team considerations when it comes to things like business continuity and, and so on. Absolutely. So when you talk about being bold and um, having that um, aptitude for business continuity, um, if you were to give advice to somebody about to start their first day in a leadership role, is that the sort of advice that you would give them, especially with everything going on at the moment? I think um, <laughs> if it was their first day, perhaps perhaps let's get the hang of it first. Uh, <laughs> I think I think my, my advice really in, on the first day would be something around my old school motto. My old school motto was S.A. Quam Videri, which is a, a Latin phrase, which means to be rather than to seem. Hmm. I think if you're going into a leadership role, um, you need to be one rather than to, be, than to seem to be one, if you see what I mean. Yes, uh, it's absolutely. about being authentic. Uh, it's about um, being focused on, on being natural. Um, and, and giving yourself the chance to, to let others be the same. Yes, it's that idea very much of leading from the top, isn't it? And really leading by example. That's incredibly important, especially at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we have a phrase which we, we utilise, which is, you know, not unsurprisingly, inflow leadership. 
Uh, and inflow leadership is, is, is an ability to create and enable and allow and encourage an environment where where everybody else is in flow, where, where there's a positive workplace energy, minimal stress, and everybody can contribute their full value. Now, in those sort of workplaces where energy is high, it's positive, um, the ability to go beyond and meet challenges such as we're facing now is there because there's a level of trust that's built up that enables that to, to be that kind of workplace, what we call a, a dynamic team flow, where, where one's not overly concerned with error, but is is able to explore what might happen, what might be possible, what might make a difference. Uh, and that kind of ability to innovate yet take responsibility a good leader will enable that sort of thought place thought processes and mindsets to be in place I think one of the dangers of, of what I see quite frequently of, of sort of closed leadership almost harking back to the old hierarchical side mm. but where 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 that environment is not created it um tends to be about control, it tends to be about fear of error um, and fear of, of not having done something. Well, in the end, we get caught out with that type of uh, leadership as we are now. Yes, absolutely. Um, at this point in time, it's very much about that culture of positivity, as you've uh, mentioned already, making sure that there's an element of trust there. There is also an element of motivation. People are just cracking on with things, but also there's this idea of a goal that we're sort of aiming towards, and that's getting through to the uh, the other side of this um, whole outbreak situation. Um, it falls upon the leader's yeah. shoulders, therefore, to create that sort of dynamic, that sort of atmosphere, isn't it, to get the best out of those around them? Yeah, absolutely, both in terms of individuals and teams and the organisation as a whole. I mean, there have been some fantastic responses reactive responses to what's happening at the moment in terms of, you know, the new hospital, the Nightingale Hospital and, and, and other things which is demonstrating what's possible when under pressure. Um, and, and it requires people to have taken responsibility which they're now which they are and they're demonstrating it incredibly well. Um, but we have a, a view, I have a view that every day when anyone goes to work, uh, and I'll um, a coach of mine, a previous coach of mine, used to refer to you have three responsibilities. You have, you have responsibility for your own performance. And if you're a leader, that means as a leader, as well as, a, as an individual. Um, and you're responsible for your own development um, because you're going to need to adapt whatever level you've got to. And you're responsible for the performance and development of those with whom you have a collective responsibility to deliver something. I think if people are able and allowed and encouraged to take those responsibilities, then a, then a positive workplace environment can achieve amazing results. Yes, absolutely. It's um, imperative that that positivity is very much there and that culture is uh, there. Um, we talk about development there. That was a word that did come up um, there as well, I noticed. Um, with that in mind, um, yeah. do you think that great leaders are essentially born with some innate qualities or is it something that one can develop and learn throughout their life and also as they develop throughout their career? I think you can, you, you, it, it, I think it's something that you learn. 
I think it's something that you acquire. I think it's something that builds over time. Um, there are some phenomenal leaders who are who would appear to be natural leaders. Um, people are able to go beyond the transactional. One of the big challenges is is that whole um, move from, if you like, uh, senior management into leadership, uh, into executive management, where you have to get beyond the transactional, go beyond what I would call the defensive and, and, and midfield role into that kind of where do we go next strategic role um, in attack, if you like, in, in a sporting sense. Mm. Um, but I, I do believe that you can learn, you can develop, you can acquire. That doesn't mean going on training courses. It means it means really understanding every experience you have and reflecting on experience and understanding what the teams you've worked in and, and shaping your mind to the role of being a leader. There's a very good example, uh, Scott, on the TV right now on, on Sky Sport. It, it, it's the um, 2018 Ryder Cup mm. where Thomas Bjorn came up with the phrase one family and one energy and the, the, the team responded to his human and natural and being himself type of leadership. Um, and he created an environment where there was a high level of trust, where there was a high level of um, people who had taken responsibility for their performance being allowed to perform in their own way, not being overly managed, but accepting where their qualities were going to add value and how different pairings would work together and so on and so forth. It's a fascinating uh, study of that Ryder Cup, but it's also a fascinating study on how someone has developed a leadership style without necessarily having had to go on, on mm -hmm. programs, but has learned as he has grown, as he's, uh, as he's lived. Yes, absolutely. And um, if we do keep that example um, in mind when we look at your career um, as well um, as a coach here, um, Neville, yeah. Has anything, um, any event or anyone actually been an influence, would you say, on your own leadership style? <laughs> I can tell you, when I, when I was first made a manager, I was awful. <laughs> in reflection, I'd have hated to have been managed by me in those days, I have to say. <laughs> I think, um, but I learned very quickly. Uh, so the first influence, there were, there were members of my team who had enough faith in me and had enough confidence in my reaction to being told that I was not very good. And I listened. And to those individuals, and they know who they are, they, they still work with me to this day. Uh, we're still friends. And um, I'm very grateful for them having the courage to, to step up and say, look, you've got, a, you've got a change here as a leader. You can't you can't be the player manager if you're going to be the manager. It's time to put your boots away uh, and actually get on with leading us. Um, so that was very influential. I think uh, in terms of my personal um, mindset to it, um, when I first saw Frank Dick, the um, British Olympics team manager of past days, uh, on stage, um, the messages he he gave out about 
um, winning and leading and coaching and managing um, all resonated well in my my mind. I'm, I'm a sportsman by nature, so it would resonate. And um, so he had a big influence in that I had the pleasure of, of later being able to, to work with him on a few things. Um, um, yes, and, and he helped me. Mm. Yeah. Well, when you speak of the example of uh, Frank Dick there, that's quite interesting um, because you say that his mes- messages did resonate very much with yourself. Um, if you were to come in and address the uh, the staff at People in Flow, presuming everybody were to be there, of course, um, what sorts of things do you think he would say and um, what messages do you think that your staff would get out of that as well? Well, I think now it's... it's coming back to what I said before, it's about um, taking responsibilities, having a clarity of purpose, agreeing what our purpose is. We, we do have an agreed purpose as a team. You know, we, we exist to energize workplaces in a positive way and reduce stress. We try to live that on ourselves uh, and um, getting individuals to contribute to that is, is vitally important. Being clear on how that purpose then relates down into our objectives in terms of the results we're looking to achieve, in terms of the actions required for those results, and in terms of the tasks required to achieve that, that breakdown, the operational um, element to it, is something which which I would encourage them to really work through in the, in the reverse way to make sure that whatever they're doing every day is actually nudging something forward. Um, I think that alignment and commitment to the shared purpose is is, uh, is very important. And as a, and, and as leaders and as managers, getting a consistency and an understanding of what that purpose means is vital. It, it, you know that, that it, we're seeing it more and more right now, where you can't agree something and walk out the door and do something different. You know, we need to see leadership teams being just that. Um, leadership teams. Yes, absolutely. And that's um, an incredibly interesting point. Um, I am conscious of running out of time, Neville, but before we do wrap things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself, for people in flow, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well, especially beyond uh, the outbreak and the fallout of that. <laughs> well, let, 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 let's look forward to that. I, I think we, we have three parts of our business and in terms of the organizational health. Organizational health is a multiplier of financial health and, and we need to step up. As we come out of this crisis, that's going to be a very important part of our consulting activity. And I think one of the things I'm asking our team to be is, is to be bolder when they're working with clients uh, to actually ensure that um, we're able to cope with and live and, and, and pick up challenges unseen. The middle part of our business looks at the contribution of, of HR and people support functions. And I think we're going to have to really look at individual, unique organizations and what actually required in those businesses rather than a sort of template that goes across the world of people. And finally, in terms of development, I think we'll see an increase in the level of coaching um, and um, possibly a decrease in the amount of uh, training activity um, because I think we're going to now need to help people with those mindset challenges uh, as we come out the other side and go beyond the process and, and really explore 
how we can get people to be the biggest lever as we as we change and as we pick up the pieces and as we drive forward. Absolutely. And I think it'll be incredibly interesting once we do get to the other side uh, to see how all of that uh, pans out. And I think it would be fantastic as well, Neville, to have you back on the programme after that's happened so that we can take a retrospective look at this and really see how things have panned out um, over the next 12 months. Um, But for now, um, it's been very insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today. And many thanks for your time to come on and speak to me about these issues for the benefit of the listeners. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic, Neville. Thank you. Uh, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was that it wasn't Marcus Scott that you gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. 
um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch 
uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities... Does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team so, okay yes. uh, number one thing about leadership i'm absolutely certain about this is 
that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of 
you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about 
think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team base at the Oval or a team base at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.